As we approach this section of David's life, um, some of the Bible translations will have a, a title at the start of it that says, David shows kindness to Mephibosheth. That's kind of the opening verse of this chapter that David asks, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Here's a passage where we see David showing, as we look at, a moment, look at it in a moment, remarkable kindness. Kindness greater than maybe any of us ever thought one person could show. And as David shows us this wonderful, beautiful kindness, we also get to see how this is but a little foretaste, a slither of a glimpse at the sort of kindness the son of David, Jesus, will show us whenever God the Father sends him for our behalf as Christians. So this morning, we're going to look at this passage in two different ways. Firstly, seeing how David shows great kindness to Mephibosheth. But secondly, then we're going to see how God, through his son Jesus, the son of David, shows us an even greater kindness. So let's start off looking at David's kindness. William has said Mephibosheth is a fairly, it's, a, it's fairly difficult, it's a fairly funny name to say. It's kind of an exercise for your face just to say it. And Mephibosheth is first named in this chapter of the Bible, but he's actually, this isn't the first time we hear about him. Mephibosheth appears in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, uh, which we had a sermon on a wee while ago. And in that sermon, Mephibosheth's uncle, Ish-bosheth, there's going to be a lot of like ishing this week, I'm sorry. Um, but Ish-bosheth is, is king over part of Israel and David's king over another part. And some raiders from the family of Saul, from the family of Ish-bosheth, kind of raise up a group to try and form a coup to kill Ish-bosheth to try and curry favour with David. And as these raiders rise up to kill Ishbosheth and to form a coup, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 4 about a five year old. A five year old who, whenever the violence begins to happen, his nurse grabs him and flees for their lives. And as they're running, this young child is dropped and both of his legs are broken. And he is lame for the rest of his life. It's a terrible story summed up in such a short verse of the Bible. But we see how in this chapter, that young child of five years old who was dropped and whose legs were broken is given a name. He's given the name Ishbosheth, or not Ishbosheth, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth has now grown up. We're meeting his story again and we're saying about what life might hold for him. And we see that life has not been kind to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth's name, um, probably he wouldn't even have necessarily been called Mephibosheth by his close friends and family because that little bit on the end, Bosheth, that, that means shame in Hebrew. So Mephibosheth would have been known, no doubt, in the surrounding area and the surrounding cities as somebody of shame. That's how low his estate is. And partially the reason for that is because he's disabled. The ancient world was not like our world. You know, whenever somebody is disabled in our society, we want to try and put things in place to help them. Uh, we want to try and improve as much as we can to make things as 
normal as relatively they can be for somebody. The ancient world was not like that at all. Mephibosheth is somebody who would have been uh, unable to walk in any ways, most likely whenever his legs were broken, they wouldn't have been set right properly whenever they went to heal, so they would have healed incorrectly and he wouldn't have been able to walk. That would have meant, yes, that he had a hard life where he wasn't able to work the way everyone else was able to work. Yes, it would have meant that he wouldn't have been able to have an income and so would have been incredibly poor. Yes, it means that he would have faced the same sort of discrimination that people with disabilities in our own society might face. But on top of all of that, in the ancient world, there is a, a view of the person that we don't have anymore. And that view is that if you don't have part of you in the ancient world, if you lost an arm, for example, because you had physically lost an arm and it meant you had one arm, in the ancient world, they had the idea, well, you know, people have two arms, you only have one arm, so therefore you are less of a person because there's less of you. If you couldn't see, it was the same. You were less of a person because people can see and you can't see. So you're somehow subhuman. And so Mephibosheth, somebody who can't walk, people are able to walk in the ancient world. So they would have looked at him, not just as somebody who was disabled, but as somebody who was subhuman because of his inability to walk. This would mean somebody who would have been disdained wherever he went. This is somebody people would have looked down on. There wouldn't have been the pity. There wouldn't have been the empathy. There wouldn't have been the compassion that we might expect in our society. The ancient world was a cruel and harsh place. And if you weren't able to pull your weight, you suffered for it. And people like Mephibosheth were deemed the lowest of the low because of it. And we see that with that low, low position that Mephibosheth is in, it's not just that he is told that by the world around him, but it's something he's internalized as well. If you look at verse eight, how he describes himself, Mephibosheth says, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? A dead dog. Now, the ancient world is, was different in the way it viewed dogs as well, not just to the way it viewed disabled people. We, whenever we think of dogs, think of lovely, cuddly companions. Even William likes dogs now. I think we could even force him to admit that. The ancient world, a dog was not a pet. It was not a companion. Um, mostly in the ancient Near East, they were scavengers. Um, if you were having your food, they would likely try and steal it from you, which is actually something that happened to us this week. Uh, we had a dog, we were having a picnic, which stole a breast of chicken off her uh, oh, as we were eating. But that would have been the only experience of dogs the ancient world had, something that stole food, something that attacked, something that was angry. Almost the way we view rats was the way the ancient world would have viewed dogs. Except if you can imagine, a dog poses a greater threat than a rat to us. So whenever Mephibosheth says that he's a dead dog, he's showing that he knows exactly his position in the world, that he is seen as subhuman by everyone around him, that he is a pest, he's a problem, and he doesn't expect any sympathy or any kindness. And yet, David shows him great kindness. If you were in the ancient world, you would have watched this and marveled 
because Mephibosheth would have been the last person David should have shown kindness to. Yes, because he was crippled and he was viewed as lowly and disgraced. But Mephibosheth is shown so much greater kindness than just David giving him gifts. David shows kindness to Mephibosheth by sparing him, sparing him. We would think that, well, why would David ever spare somebody like Mephibosheth? Surely Mephibosheth would pose no threat. Mephibosheth is somebody who is, in all sense of the world, downcast and downtrodden by the world around him. But Mephibosheth at this point would still have posed a little bit of a threat to David because Mephibosheth is able to inherit the throne of Saul, the throne that David now sits on. And there would have been a sizable group of people in Israel who would have wanted to get rid of David and put Mephibosheth as king over them instead as a rightful heir to the throne. David then in Mephibosheth is faced not just with somebody who the rest of the world would have viewed as a pest. He, he is somebody who the rest of the world would have viewed as an enemy of David. And that's even in the fact that we see where Mephibosheth is found. He's found in a desert region called Lodabar. Lodabar literally means no pasture. It's, it's in the desert. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's a sort of place where if we were to have somewhere like it in Northern Ireland, it would be nothing but rushes and wind bushes, and there would be nothing that could grow and sheep couldn't even graze it. It would be the middle of nowhere, Bally go backwards. And it is as far away from David as Mephibosheth can get on the other side of the Jordan River. And the reason Mephibosheth is there is that he's hiding. He's hiding from David because he knows what every other king in the ancient Near East does whenever they find out there's somebody still alive of the old family line of kings. And that is they find that far off distant great, 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 great grandson and they kill them so that no one else can lay, lay claim to the throne. So Mephibosheth, somebody who is downtrodden, downcast, who is viewed as lowly like a pest, who is hiding off in the far side of Israel, suddenly has soldiers arrive at his door and say, the king wants to see you. The Bible, points like this often doesn't give us an insight into what people would have felt, but I don't think it's too much conjecture to think that Mephibosheth would have been fearing for his life. As he's brought into the court of David and the NIV says it quite nicely. It says that he bowed down and he paid honor. Really what it says is he threw himself on his face is almost the language that's given. He throws himself on his faith because he knows that he has only, the only thing he can plead or hope for is that David might just spare his life and not kill him. Or if he is going to kill him, he would kill him quickly. Because Mephibosheth realizes that he poses some sort of a political threat to David and every other king kills people like Mephibosheth. So why would David be any different? And yet David does something wonderful. He tells him, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And he blesses Mephibosheth far more than he ever thought. David spares Mephibosheth's life whenever no other king in the ancient world would have spared it. And the onlookers must have thought, what sort of kindness is this? And yet David goes on further. We see, as we continue in verse seven, he says, I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land. 
Mephibosheth, as somebody who would have been disabled, would have had probably most of his possessions taken away from him. He would have been incredibly poor. He would have only known a lot of hardship in his life. And yet here's David giving him the lands that rightly belonged to Saul, that rightly belonged to the king or or the, the old king, giving him an income, giving him a sense of stability, giving him a bit of hope. As we see that Mephibosheth is then placed over Ziba, the servant, and he is given servants of his own. And almost in a moment, Mephibosheth goes from somebody who you would expect to see begging in the street to somebody who has a a home, a farm, and servants under him. It it almost boggles the mind that something like like this might be happening. And yet how wonderful it is that David is showing such beautiful kindness in restoring Mephibosheth in this way. And then we see he piles on another level of grace and of comfort when he says, you will eat at my table. Who, whenever you're allowed to invite people into your house again, who are you going to have around at your house? I imagine there are family and friends that you have not seen for a long, long time. And if you're like us, you have a list in your head of the people who you're going to have around. I wonder how many of you have somebody you really dislike on your list. How many of you are inviting that really annoying person at work round to your house first thing whenever you open up? You know that person who whenever um, they just get on your nerves in every way. Are you going to invite that person? Because that is in a sense what David does here. He texts somebody like Mephibosheth who in worldly terms is an enemy of David who is of a house who he battled for for years. And he says, you will eat at my table. He dines with those who the world tells him he should hate. What kind of kindness is this? And David goes one step further. It's in verse 11. Because Mephibosheth could be invited into his home. He could be invited to the table of the king and he could share in some of the, 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 the spoils of David's throne. But it says in verse 11 that he was treated like one of the king's sons. I imagine we have people who we would love to be there and support. Who we say, you know, if you're having any bother, give us a ring. But I imagine most of us would restrain ourselves from treating them like one of our children by looking after them for 18 years and going through countless nights of no sleep and all of the things we go through with children. Because that's the inner circle and we protect the inner circle. But David brings Mephibosheth, somebody who by rights should be his enemy, further still into his throne and into his family, and he is treated as one of his sons. What sort of kindness is this? We could come away from this passage and we could think that, well, isn't David just really, really great? Isn't this so lovely? But we want to ask ourselves, why does David show this kindness? Why is David so loving? Why is David so generous? And the reason that he is so loving and so generous is because ultimately, this is a reflection of God's kindness. Whenever, whenever we read this passage of somebody who is 
unworthily being brought in to be part of the son of David's family. That's a reflection of what happens to us as Christians. Whenever we believe in the one son of David, Jesus, and we are brought into the family and lavished with blessings and kindness. And that's shown even in the word that gets used here for kindness. Um, it's a Hebrew word, chesed. You're getting a lot of Hebrew today. Um, so chesed is, is a word that shows up time and time again throughout the Bible. And it means steadfast love. You can maybe try saying it, chesed. Maybe try in three, two, one, chesed. There's a bit of a phlegm to it. It's quite fun to say. But chesed is is repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament. And whenever it gets repeated, it always refers to a special kind of love. It doesn't refer to being really nice or really kind or a sentimentality. It refers to love that's linked to a promise. It's referred to love that's bound in a covenant. It's like the difference between love that is maybe the love that you have whenever you first meet the person who you want to spend the rest of your life with and your you know, butterflies in the tummy love. And then there's you, that love that you have of, of decades later, whenever you have built and built upon that covenant promise you made on your wedding day. That is the sort of love that this is, the sort of love that endures, the love that is ongoing, the love that, as the Bible translates it time and time again, is steadfast love. This is the love that... Um, we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7 whenever David is promised by God that, that in his line, the chesed of the Lord will never depart from his throne. The steadfast love of the Lord will never depart from his throne and his descendants. Whenever back in Exodus, Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock and the presence of the Lord passes by, the cherubim begin to sing and exclaim and say that the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, in steadfast love. This is who God is. A God who is full and abounds in steadfast love. This is not mere kindness that David is showing, but it is a reflection a partial glimpse at the steadfast love of the Lord towards those who are in his son, in the true son of David, Jesus. And God shows us this kindness, this steadfast love, this chesed, in the same sort of ways that David shows this kindness to Mephibosheth, in that we are spared by God. I don't know, you maybe don't think about that often with God's love, the idea of being sparing. But the reality is, is that outside of Christ, outside of Jesus' name, we are at enmity of God. That, that's what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, where it says, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. While we were enemies of God. You, you might think, you're maybe thinking that, that's quite strong language, you know. Prior to my life as a Christian, or maybe if you're not a Christian here today, you maybe think, I wouldn't say I'm an enemy of God. I just... I don't bother him and he doesn't bother me. You know, we'll, we'll do our own thing and whenever we maybe meet, we'll square up the books then and we'll, we'll just do each other right. But I don't want to bother him as long as he doesn't bother me. And we might not think that that's enmity with God. But I wonder if you maybe know the famous quote from uh, the Holocaust survivor, Elie Weissel. This is quite a famous quote. Where he says, the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. 
the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. Elie Weissel um, survived the Holocaust and was in concentration camps at the end of the Second World War. And um, he got a Nobel Prize for his work on reflecting on the concentration camps afterwards. And if there's anybody who knows what pure hatred is, it would be a man like Elie Weissel who's experienced it at humanity's worst. And how does he define the opposite of love? Not hatred, but indifference. And if we think that if we are indifferent to God, that that is anything other than enmity and hatred of him, we are deluding ourselves. Do you truly love God or are you indifferent towards him? Because if you are indifferent, it is a grave danger because the Lord is merely sparing his hand. It is loving and kindness that he does it, but he is sparing his hand. It would be a terrible thing if we were to end just there. But we see that God doesn't just spare us, he restores us. The same way that Mephibosheth had all of the land of his fathers restored to him. We are restored whenever we are first filled with the Holy Spirit and become a Christian. We are restored in such a wonderful way. We're maybe not given land, not given an inheritance, but we are restored in our nature, in the very fiber of our being. As Presbyterians, we believe in a thing called total depravity. I know it's a big phrase, but what it means is that not that you're a Disney villain, not that you're the most evil, corrupt person in the world, but that every person is tainted with sin in every part of their being. There's not, a, there's not a good core in us that isn't tainted by sin. All of us is tainted by sin in some way. Because if you think about it, we live in a world filled with sin. We are born to sinful parents. We are brought up not being taught how to sin. Margot, our daughter, is 10 months old, and I have not had to teach her. You know, I love her, love her dearly, and I will do anything for her, but I have not had to teach her how to misbehave in sin. You know, she, doesn't, she didn't need to be taught that whenever she doesn't like something, she needs to throw it across the room so that I find scrambled egg underneath all of our tables and chairs. You know, she doesn't need to be taught that she, to shout and stamp until she gets what she wants. That's part of her nature. It's part of the sin because we are swimming in a world filled with sin. It's like that joke you've maybe heard um, where there's two fish in the water swimming on a lovely summer's day and one fish says to the other, isn't the water lovely? And the other fish says, what's water? That is what it is like to live in a sinful world, for it to be the waters in which we swim. But God in restoring us allows us to see the water around us for what it truly is. In the words of the Westminster Larger Catechism, it says that by sight and by sense, we get to see the danger the, the filthiness of sin, but we get to see the hope that's offered in Jesus as he's held out to us in the gospel. That's what it means to be restored, to have our senses restored so we can see the sin that's around us and see the hope that we're promised in Jesus because of it. And then not only that, just as Mephibosheth was invited to dine at the table of a king, we are invited to dine at a table of a king. We haven't been able to celebrate communion for quite some time. 
Um, we've celebrated it on Good, or on Good Friday, but we haven't been able to celebrate it for quite a few months before that. And you'll notice that in communion, what happens is we bring a big table down here, and it maybe doesn't look very much like a meal, I know, and it doesn't maybe look like the sort of Sunday lunch that we would maybe have. But what happens at that table is that God invites all who are in his son, Jesus, to dine with him. And as we eat the bread and as we drink the wine, we are dining in the presence of the Lord. That is no small thing. And yet it is a marvelous thing because we are not invited to the table in our own merit and we are not invited because we are good and gracious. But just as Mephibosheth is invited because of, not because of what he is, but because the kindness of the one who invites him, we get invited to dine at that table because of the kindness of the one who invites us and would not spare his own son that we might have a seat to share in the bread and the wine with him. And finally, not only does God invite us to dine with him, but he treats us not just like a son, but like his son. The love that the eternal father has for the son, the chesed love, the steadfast love, the unending love, the enduring love, the love that has no limit bounds, no start nor finish, the love that God the Father had perfectly for his son in all eternity is the exact same love that he has for those who are bound in Jesus' name. If we receive and we rest in Jesus, if we trust him, if he is our savior, our Lord and our friend, every benefit that is on him is given to us so that God the Father doesn't just treat us like any son, but he treats us like his eternal perfect and blessed son. This is what true, steadfast, chesed, kindness, love looks like. Would we grasp the heights of this? And would we marvel at it? And would we be changed by it? So that like David, we might be able to show the kindness of God to those who are in need of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your loving kindness, for your chesed love, your steadfast love, your love that has no end, and that you give it to us so freely. Oh Lord, would we savor it and rejoice in it. In Jesus' name, amen.